Good evening, good day, salutations, and hello. Welcome to another episode of A24 on the Rocks. I am your host tonight, Blaze Ryan, and I am again humbled and honored to be here along with my ragtag group of film aficionados. However, the recording will be a little brighter as we have a special guest to shine upon our podcast tonight. Also, it'll be an A24 OTR standing record of number of siblings brought on to our little show. My sister was brought on as an abortion expert, and Eric's sister, a poker pioneer. Let's find out if our guest is involved in dystopian futures and or hunting humans in order to extend their stay at hotels. Welcome to my show, to the show, my brother. Many hamburgers to you, and please introduce yourself. Yes, I'm Blaze's brother, Patrick, and I, you know, I've been a brother for about 28 years now. Yes, yeah. <laughs> what are you drinking? I'm drinking Gatorade. <laughs> I have a little Gatorade. stomach thing going. Here's diesel in there. I poured a little diesel. That's what plants crave. <laughs> diesel. <laughs> All right. Next up, we got. Uh, my name is Cole William Whitlaw Gibson, uh, number one redhead on the podcast. Tonight, I am drinking an old fashioned infused Jefferson's Ocean Age. Took it, put it in a bottle with a bunch of weird shit that I bought from a craft store, and turns out it's pretty fucking delicious. Huh. So that's what I'm drinking tonight. Up next, we got my boy, Kevin. Good evening, world. This is Kevin K. Kanachek, and tonight I am drinking a Bardstown Bourbon Company Origin Series um, because bourbon is delicious, as I've said more times than I can count, and uh, it's freaking awesome. So I'm happy to be here, happy to talk about this movie and drink some more bourbon. Next up, we got the Kiskas. My name's Eric Kiska. Uh, I am drinking camping beer from Brew Detroit. I went camping a couple years ago and found this beer, and it was very good, and it really tastes like you're camping. Up next, we have... The Marie Antoinette of film reviews. Do not guillotine her. Uh, this is Kelly. What's up, Kelly? Okay, that was odd intro, but this is Kelly. I am Eric's perfectly suited and matched partner. And wouldn't you like to know what our signature characteristic that we share I'm is? I'm very curious. Tonight, yeah. <laughs> I am drinking a variation on a cocktail that my friend makes. I call it the Sonia Special. It is a little bit of Sprite that you give with tangerine, LaCroix, and most importantly, the alcohol, grapefruit vodka. It's refreshing, it's light, and very tasty. Um, yeah, so once again, my name is Blaze, and uh, I am drinking in honor of tonight's movie. It is a Coppertail Free Dive Indian Pale Ale from my one of my favorite Florida brewing companies. Uh, the movie that we are reviewing tonight is called The Lobster. It is a 2015 film from Yorsos Lavinos. That's very Greek, so I'm not going to try to say that again. Yorgos uh, Lanthimos. Yorgos Lanthimos. Yorgos. Yorgos Lanthimos. He's the former director of Dogtooth and also a movie that we're going to be reviewing in the future, Killing of a Sacred Deer, which is also A24. Again, this movie was released at the 2015 Keynes Film Festival, and it actually won the jury prize. It had a budget of $4 million, and it's one of the few movies so far that actually made money. It made $18 million in the box offices. So for a quick uh, elevator pitch of this movie, if you haven't heard of it, why are you watching or listening? But uh, 
just in case you haven't. Um, in the dystopian future, David, played by Colin Farrell, whose wife has just left him, is sent to a hotel for singles in the country. The strict hotel's rules are meant in a clinical fashion to foster love, as everyone in the society, straight or gay, is paired up romantically. There are harsh punishments for anyone who breaks the rules, and like the others, if David does not find a love within the hotel in 45 days, he will be surgically transformed into an animal of his choice. Patrick, before we start, I would like to ask you uh, what your relation to is to film, to A24 film, or The Lobster in general. Do you have a background, anything like that? This is actually the first movie I've ever seen. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. Are they I, all like I could this? have sworn I've seen you watch all... Happy Gilmore. <laughs> I've seen movies. That's my relationship. Okay, okay. Fair enough. You've done short films yourself, though, right? Yeah, that's true. So maybe you have a little technical know-how into it. Harkening back to when we did the tusk, uh, Kelly asked us, what animal would you want to turn into? You could turn into an animal surgically. Let's go back to that, because in this movie, you get to tune yourself into an animal. So, Cole, what animal would you choose if you uh, unfortunately separated from your significant other? I think it would be pretty cool to turn into like uh, an octopus. Cephalopod. Pretty, pretty, pretty baller. Yeah, yeah. Um, either that or a Highland cow, because those things are fucking amazing and look really cool. But Pacific octopus, you know, the big boy. My opinion on this is pretty straightforward. I think I'd be uh, a bald eagle because uh, a, it's pretty American. Uh, B, it's endangered species, so no one's gonna mess with you at all. You uh, get to eat a whole bunch of fish, live in one of the most beautiful places in the entire world, and you partner with, you know, your mate for life and have a bunch of cool eaglets. So, bald eagle, definitely uh, is going to be my my choice on that one. Kiska's, I know it's never going to happen, but in a weird parallel universe, what do you guys turn it into once you uh, break up? So, I was actually looking into birds first, because I'm like, it would be really cool to fly but then I noticed a lot of birds have very, very short lifespans. I, I love snowy owls, but their sh- uh, lifespan in the wild is only 10 years. So I'm like, that's a little short for me. So I think I would uh, turn into a gorilla. Uh, they have lots of sex. They have a uh, harem, um, and they live 35 to 40 years. And they actually don't really hunt. They are, you know, they just kind of go around eating bananas and bamboo. And they do eat termites, too. But, uh, you know, I... I wouldn't have to move that much, and I would still be really strong, and um, that would make me happy. Cool, cool. Kelly, have you thought of this? Yes, at all? luckily. I just realized that oh, uh, octopuses oh, only no. live for five years. <laughs> I'm gonna die. <laughs> Shit. Poor man. Unfortunately, so Eric and I did talk about this, so I had some time to think. But I already knew I had to be an animal with claws. I feel the most powerful when my nails are long. And I want to be solitary and adapted to all kinds of environments. So I'm going with a jaguar. I want to be able to swim. I nice. want to be able to climb. And I want to hunt. Patrick, uh, you thought about this at all? Yeah, if I, I'd be, uh, if I were going to be turned into an animal, it would be Blaze Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of animal would Blaze be? No, I don't know. Maybe an yeah, African swallow. Well. As opposed to a European one, right? As opposed, yeah, I could carry a coconut. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Go very fast. Very cool, very cool. I would be a meerkat just because in The Lion King, it seems like uh, Timon had such a good time being a meerkat. So I really feel like, you know, I could get off those vibes uh, pretty well. Plus, you get to live in holes, which is pretty cool. 
Um, Kelly's gonna fucking kill you one day. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> That's her jet yeah, She's right. fast She's gonna enough. Come I just found out that bald eagles live 30 years. That's pretty cool. Okay, so we usually start off the uh, review with uh, opening vibes. I really feel like this movie is open to a lot of interpretation, so uh, I guess soft spoilers ahead because I really feel like we can't ask any questions without um, people knowing <laughs> what this movie's about. I'm talking about the, uh, the be- opening opening scene of the one shot with the woman in her car. Also, fortunately, I had seen this movie once before. I'm a big fan of Killing of a Sacred Deer, which we'll talk about on a later episode. This is my second time seeing The Lobster, so the opening sequence had a different meaning for me than seeing it the first time. Obviously, it opens with a good old bit of animal violence to a donkey who's done nobody any wrong. But if you're watching it the second time, you're going to catch some things like probably why this scene happens. I don't know. It's probably somebody else's first time seeing it. So I think it might be more interesting to hear what they thought on that opening because I think I might know what happened. Absolutely. So immediately we get that obvious long shot of just 13 seconds, 15 seconds of staring at this woman as she's driving. My first thought is, what is she thinking? Like, what is she doing? Where is she going? So I obviously want to know what's in her head because they're just doing the straight shot. And then, of course, we get she pulls out a revolver and shoots a donkey in the three times and walks away. And with all of these movies, I try my best. A, no trailers. B, no descriptions. I don't want to know anything. I want to go in with a complete, absolute blank slate. So imagine me doing that with this film. And that's the first two minutes is a straight shot and then blowing a donkey's head off. Now, luckily for me, I've watched 30 whatever A24 movies by now. So I know that it's not abnormal anymore. <laughs> that's very much kind of like expected to, oh, that's weird as hell. I bet I'm going to find out why later. And so for me, it was kind of really jarring, but it wasn't like an off-putting start by any stretch. So it was kind of one of those that really set up the absurdity of the rest of the film. So good on the director and writer for making that the first impact for somebody new, putting WTF on their paper within the first 30 seconds. Yeah, this is actually my yeah my third time seeing it. And so, yeah, I, I kind of just figured out the second time I saw it. Uh, that it was just a woman probably killing an ex ex lover, and uh, yeah, it's very it's very much there to be a jarring opening to an absurd film, and then you know we get the lobster in big in a big title, and we go right into David's wife telling her she's cheating on him, and we don't even see David's wife at all, we just see him there just kind of taking it in, almost very unemotional. That's obviously a big thing in this film is. All the characters are unemotional, which I'm sure we're going to get into the why later in the podcast. So as before stated, this is a movie that takes place in a maybe a parallel universe, but definitely a dystopian future. Now, as someone who loves dystopian futures in cinema from like Soylent Green to Judge Dredd along those ilks. After watching this movie, Cole, how do you rank the livability of this movie? One to ten, one being like you're living in an iRobot and you don't even know what singularity is happening, and ten being Snowpiercer and you're in the back of the train. <laughs> wow. For audio listeners, Cole just what? like a <laughs> he just like ability. held his All head right. in his hands. Yeah, it's like why would you ask me that? <laughs> like, like I you're you're talking about which would you like, like the universe yeah. that was that was built in this film and if I would like living in it. Compared to other dystopian futures, okay. yeah, yeah, like uh, how okay. hard or easy it would be to live in. Uh, for me, I think it would be. I think it would be all right. Um, I'm a pretty good hunter, pretty good shot. So worst case scenario, I'll just be living up 
get collecting all those days, no big deal. Um, best case scenario, you know, you find someone, you live happily ever after and stuff. Definitely a little too clinical for me. The whole movie was very clinical, the way people interacted. But yeah, I mean, worst case scenario, I'm just out in the woods every night blasting with my boys. So <laughs> I mean, it can't be that bad. <laughs> What I really like about this kind of dystopian future is that usually it's these kind of stories are told from like technology's impact, like Ex Machina. That's kind of a world that could happen. And a lot of the times also it's very like class conscious and tells the story from that kind of perspective. This movie kind of strips away both of these factors and it's just relationship based and the way that the world sees you based on what your status is and what your like labels are even as far as you can only be straight or gay like in this world too and you get to live in a different area based on what your status is and the way that then people behave in this kind of world from faking their love in order to get out of a certain situation i just it's a new like refreshing kind of dystopia and then that would be one thing and then on top of that is the director's choice to have this kind of clinical way of people interacting with each other and deadpan delivery just nonstop throughout the whole entire movie as well. So it's almost two dystopias on top of each other. It could have been one or the other and been a good film, but it's both. So it's a refreshing, like different. I describe this movie, it's weird, but it's the good weird. And that's like the most obvious way to describe it is as just a weird movie. That's perfect that you describe it as two separate dystopian societies because that's how the movie also sets it up for us too, right? You have a society where couples run the world in the city and then you have a society where single people or the outcasts lived in the woods. So it also kind of gives us that breakdown too from a a sense of this is what society has now come down to. Um, And to the original question, Blaze, whether or not you think I can live in that dystopian society, I think it would be incredibly difficult. I think that's a very weird, crazy thought that that uh you're second class citizens if you're single that's that's what kelly said is you unique super unique take on it and it, you have to think about it, it's like you're getting checked your like your card whether or not you're married license like that's bonkers to me and it's just a really interesting question to ask in general like is that where we're at and i'm sure well, that's the whole topic of this entire film but yeah it was i couldn't do it uh to answer your question it would be too wild for me we live in a society <laughs> Oh, no. Yeah, I know. So compared to other dystopian societies like Soylent Green, where you're eating your neighbor that's like secretly plankton or vice versa that, I think there's a lot worse dystopian futures for as bad as this one seems. Was this shot and the dialogue purposely bad? And when I say bad, I mean it's very minimalistic. The shots are very drab, low-angle shots. The dialogue is almost inhuman they almost sound alien to each other what do you guys think the artistic choice was if there was one compared to a uh, another movie where maybe the camera work was just as bad kevin let's start with you i think that the choices that they put into the dialogue specifically were incredibly intentional um start to finish across the entire board from the way that we get the delivery of our hotel management staff to the way we get the delivery of the narrator to the outsiders everybody like you alluded to had that deadpan and eric mentioned it earlier that the lack of emotion is incredibly evident throughout this entire film they really want you to focus on the actions on the intent of why these characters are in their spaces without using their dialogue to influence their emotions or anything else especially in the second half of the movie where 
the wrong laden type of dialogue in this circumstance flirting is punishable by such extreme measures um, they really do a great job of making sure that we don't get any rise of emotion even so much that we get a physical punishment when that happens to our characters so that's kind of the way that the vibe for the viewer is as well and uh, i really appreciated that technique because it was so evident every turn you had even from that music scene with the dance, like that's almost where it was so obvious. Like there's zero emotion in that entire dance scene from start to finish across the board, super intentional, super obvious. And uh, it was pretty unique to watch. Yeah, Eric? So yeah, the, Yorgos Lanthimos, this is a common um, theme in all of his films. He has very unemotional dialogue. And it, it's usually a film that asks a very broad philosophical question. He wants the audience to focus on the question he's asking as opposed to the dialogue or emotions that the characters might have. So he always minimizes emotions in films so that the audience can focus on the philosophical question he's asking. And the dialogue, too, one thing I really wanted to uh, point out was the voiceover narration. I'm sure a lot of people notice how odd that was. And I was uh, kind of reading some stuff into it, and a lot of people come to this conclusion that he was actually mocking voiceover narration the whole film. Um, Rachel Weiss, uh, she's the voiceover narrator, and she plays the lover later in the film. And it, you can tell she's mocking, or they're mocking voiceover narration because there will literally be like somebody walks through a door. And then uh, she just goes, he walks through a door. <laughs> and really obvious voiceover narration. And it's supposed to be absurd. And that's what Yorgos Lanthimos, a lot of his films are very absurd. And that is why the dialogue is this way. It's He uses absurdity and also like this unemotional dialogue and almost unemotional acting so that our audience can focus on this broad philosophical question that uh, he is asking. Right. There was literally the one scene where... The characters said the line, and the narrator said the exact same line right afterwards. Mm -hmm. And it was so obvious that you're right; it was intentionally put in there for us to be like, "Why it's the mock, hell would you do that?" Yeah, yeah, that was brilliant. Uh, Patrick, what did, what did you think of the uh, cinematography? Do you think it was used in the same way to make us focus on certain things? Like, like I said, there's a lot of low angles, a lot of long shots, um, action scenes. There weren't like a lot of shaky camera or anything like that. It was all pretty dull, but at the same time, I think it was very important that it was dull. What do you think? Uh, I actually thought it looked, it was very well shot and looked very nice. And I thought the shots were more, mm -hmm. I don't know, I didn't read it all as them being like boring and drab. I thought they were kind of more like big and expressive almost. Well, there's the hunting scene, the first hunting scene, it kind of reminds you of these like old paintings of like big hunting, like fox hunts with like beagles and like dudes on horses and shit like that. Yeah, I, th I think that the cinematography uh, mirrors almost the music in this film. It's overly dramatic, and, uh, and you have a lot of these slow-motion shots, too. And, I mean, there are, I think, shots in here that I enjoy just, like, as a, a, a frame. At the same time, I think this is also, like, uh, his style where he makes things overly uh, dramatic to kind of juxtapose these very unemotional characters that we get yeah that and first hunt it, scene yes. you you were right like that slow-mo that ridiculousness of of the emotion mm -hmm. that was on over the top but for a good reason man yeah, no one was aiming down sights just saying no they were yeah you're right you're just kind of dry pulling at that point just yeah okay does anyone uh well I, I, eric agrees with patrick does anyone agree with me that i felt i felt it was a little underwhelming but i thought it was on purpose but uh obviously um 
I would say yeah. okay. I, guess. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of in the middle. I liked the cinematography a lot in this film. I don't know if it overutilized, but it definitely went hard in like the long, just like pause frames where it just sits there for a long time, which goes into part of some of the stuff I didn't like. This movie was very long. I'm a big 90 minute movie fan. I think a lot of you know I've said it a couple times before where. It's 90 minutes and they just nail it. I'm all about it. This one, I think they could have done a 90 minute and nailed it. Um, I still like it, but uh, some of the shots were just way too long. But I did like the slow-mo first initial hunting scene shot was pretty funny. And then just the, the, the way that they used like the low camera angles, especially in some of the rooms and some of the shots and how they would like cut people's faces off of. So you just have like no emotion to them. I thought was pretty cool. You hear that, Spielberg? Cole thinks Schindler's List should have been 90 minutes. Uh, <laughs> okay, you're the lobster in Schindler's wait, List. Way too long. Uh, I'm just what saying. On spot? Schindler's List. Wow. Way too you, long if you take movie. every single long pause in this film that is like three minutes, and you're like, you know what? Let's do it for two minutes. It'll still get the point across. And bam, I guarantee you got a 90-minute film here, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Peter Jackson, Lord I, of the Rings, can't way too long. You, at all, Cole. you could have cut out way more of LOTR. Are you telling Peter me Jackson that in LOTR there's just scenes where Frodo is just like standing there? I mean, there's a lot of scenes. I'm not of, done uh, yet. There's a lot of See, you already cut me off early. That's how. See, you can't <laughs> we even are, wait. We are. <laughs> what? We're using the acronym LOTR and we're talking about shortening things. Come on, let's go. <laughs> I say A24 OTR. I'll, I'll drop in my opinion on the cinematography real quick. Yeah, yes, please, Kelly, please. please. To get us back to the, or the dialogue. To the lobster. TL, if you may. <laughs> I will say that I think that there's actually a good variation of different kind of shots. I think there's a lot of close-ups for dialogue. I think that I saw a lot of really far away shots from when they're just even walking the grounds in the hotel. It's almost as if you're on the upper level of the hotel looking down. There's some really dramatic and violent scenes that you see from a distance and up close both. Within the city, I think that there's a different type of style and filter that we're seeing the world through as well. So also the like the chase scene too. I know we're not fully through the plot or anything, but there's a chase that kind of happens throughout the hotel. And that shot to me in a very interesting way with a lot of like downward shots through the staircases, which you see in a lot of films. And I think that there's a reason. It's a really interesting way to look at what a chase scene means. But all these kind of things, I think, are incorporated. And I think that the cinematography was quite good. Yeah, I, I think it was good, too, just so everyone knows. <laughs> yeah, I mean, since I don't think we're going to come back to cinematography while this, I want to touch on a couple of the pieces that I really enjoyed about oh, it. Oh, watch me, um, motherfucker. Oh, well, I mean, and, <laughs> right, and if you don't want me to drop on you yet, that's fine. I just think in general. No, no, no. This is car blocks. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I think the use of some some color saturation stuff was really important in this film, um, especially around the use of blood. And we kind of get it in some extreme scenes, and maybe we'll touch on it later as we get in the plot, but the intricate uses of using it against some drab backgrounds and the focus on it in certain scenes really made it jump out in general. Um, I liked Kelly's comment on the on the difference between the city life viewing and, and the rest of the film. That was really important for me because as you're leaving this security, or not even security, but the other setting completely and finding yourself in this one, it's really important to make sure the viewer gets that there's a difference between those two settings, and that was really important. So that was a good job on that. So, yeah. No, absolutely. You can definitely tell the difference between the 
the forest and how wet and yucky it was, how prim and proper the hotel was, and how sterile and uh, corporate the city was. So I thought they did a really good job at that, too, as far as the color palettes go, at least. One of the main, in the movie, one of the main themes, I should say, is uh, relationships and how they are viewed as very superficial and skin deep. Whether it's, you know, you have a partner because you both have a limp, you're both nearsighted, you both bleed out of the nose, you both love butter biscuits, whatever it is. What do you guys think the significance of this surface level importance of a relationship is? Do you think there was a bigger uh, allegory being painted within this um, allegory, I guess, or... Is it, you know, what did you think of their uh, stress on, like, skin-deep uh, relationships? Cole, let's start with you. Uh, yeah, I think it was definitely kind of a, um, a mocking of kind of those, like, tropes that you see in films and stuff like that of people that meet each other. And they're like, you know, like, uh, oh, my God, do you like olives? No, I hate olives. Well, I love olives. Oh, well, you can always have my olives. We're going to be perfect for each other. Like that kind of like, you know, kind of dumb shit where it's like, you know, why do you guys work together? And it's like, well, he eats all my olives, so life is going to be good. Uh, I thought it was quite comical. I thought it was funny the way that they made, like this movie was so clinical. And I'm probably going to say that word a million times during this, but it was just so bland and so dry. And everything was very like almost medical in the way they talked. And then they're just like, yeah, I get nosebleeds too. Wow, really? Yeah, I think I think we're gonna let's I, fall in love. I think we're gonna be in love. I mean, if you don't, six weeks later, you're turning into a freaking chimpanzee. Well, yeah, and that's where obviously <laughs> it gets into the uh, the loners versus the the non loners societal battle of you know everyone's just pretending to fall in love so they don't have to fucking turn into animals uh, or just a million dogs running around. Eric, but what do you think the uh, was there anything more to the superficial relationships that was shown in the film? Yeah, uh, I I mean I think this whole film uh, we'll just cut to it. Uh, it's about kind of societal pressures on people to be in relationships, and it, it kind of asks like why isn't okay to be single? And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, these people that are like very committed to being single all the time. You know, why isn't it okay to be in a relationship? It's kind of like pitting the two against each other. And um, the pressures to be in a relationship can lead people to lying to their significant others, tricking them into, you know, falling in love with them. And then that whole relationship will be based on a lie. Uh, And, you know, throughout this film, we go, we follow David. He goes from a person being single but being on the market to a person... Being in a relationship that's based on a lie, that is this sociopathic woman, uh, which I love uh, when he kicks the the little girl. I know Cole loved that scene because he doesn't like children. And, uh, you know, I... Um, and then we have a person purposely being a loner. And, you know, we'll skip towards the end. You know, somebody being infatuated with somebody. And uh, throughout the film, though, like, this main character is kind of constantly lying to, to people to kind of fit in. And... I think it just has a lot to do with the societal pressures that are placed on people as they grow older and, you know, it's almost looked like as weird to be, I don't know, just not one or the other. It asks that question in a very absurd, um, dystopian way. Very nice. That's a great yeah, answer. Yeah, I will say... Um, does anyone else... I, I do want to comment. Um, I, 
you know, this movie is, is, you know, branded as a dark comedy. I did not laugh out loud in any scene besides when he just straight up kicked that kid. I absolutely just, like, <laughs> lost it in my hotel room alone. Uh, definitely the Deep. highlight of the movie. <laughs> the only other scene I'll comment on, Cole, was the uh, electric dance party. Oh, that was another that was noise. Good one. <laughs> I, I was just, I laughed out loud. But um, to answer your question, was there an allegory? Was there, yes, absolutely, 100%. This was very much a, when you're done watching it or as you're watching it, are you asking yourself this question, do you agree or disagree with this, with the societal pressures? And we interestingly get to see all of the options, which I love. Like you mentioned, we get that couple option. We get the single option. We get to decide if you want to have kids in there. Like this, this clinical setup of this movie, like Cole alluded to, is so brilliant because you can actually see this happening somewhere in the near future in the sense that societal pressures on couples are real. It's a real thing. And um, that was kind of a cool aspect of it, but took it to a big extreme. Yeah, I kind of thought, I don't know, I think there's some kind of, you know, truth to, like, wanting to be with someone who has something in common with you. Yeah. I don't think that was that ridiculous and absurd. Well, maybe the way they over-satirized it? Yeah, it's the I way they focused so, on but... it a lot. I mean, you don't think there was a point to it? Like, that's... Just... Is, no, is I definitely think there enough? was a point to it in like the sense that like your relationship's built on a lie and stuff. You wear glasses, Patrick? Yeah. No, no, I don't. In your sight? <laughs> well, neither well, do see, I. I don't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't wear glasses either. <laughs> Although I, I wholeheartedly agree with Eric's sentiment. That I think that's the big broader picture of the pressure of relationships. But I think the reason why they over-satirized that specific part was in more of in society today you know if you aren't the same skin color if you aren't the same religion if you don't come from the same uh you know background then it's very hard for you to you know come together because of those societal pressures and i think by saying oh i have a limp oh i bleed out the nose a lot i think that's a very simplistic way of saying oh i'm muslim you're christian you know i'm trans you're cis i think that's a very um roundabout way of saying that we have to get into these super nuancy details in order to like even begin a relationship. Kevin? I think the question that we should ask uh, ourselves, and I'm going to ask you, Blaze, since you're hosting and haven't got to answer yet, is do opposites attract? And if no, are we left with the idea that you have to climb some slim sense of, of similarity, even if it's something as simple as nearsightedness? Or do you need to have all of these core elements uh, in in line before we start a relationship? Because we've all heard that cliche, right? Opposites attract. Well, in this circumstance, we're trying to prove that that's not the case. So, Blaze, what do you think? I think it's a cornucopia. I think uh, opposites do attract. But I also agree that you need to have some commonality. Um, so it really defined, It really depends where you draw that line. For example, I'm not going to have my girlfriend sit down and watch an NFL game with me the same way she's not going to make me sit down and watch another documentary about the Queen. But we also have our very specific interests that we have in each other that we grow on with each other. And then we get to the point where, okay, I'll watch this inning of baseball with you and I'll, you know, watch this documentary about Princess Di, even though I've seen it twice already. You know, it's, it's you know, it, it, it's it's the beginning of the give and take relationship, but I think those are the best relationships. So you do have to have commonality to start out, but you also need opposites so you can grow as a person yourself. Okay, there's like two things that I think that this whole part of the movie brings up for me. One being, it's 
apparent to us with David being nearsightedness is like his his trait and that's who he's looking to find. And it seems to be that that's like you have your one trait and that's who you're going to get matched with. And the very first scene that we even have with David, before you even know that he's talking to his wife or he's finding out it's a cheating scandal, he just asks, does he wear glasses or contacts? So their relationship was just built on the nearsightedness, even... 12 years or 11 years and one month in that's as deep as that they that they get because society's not safe for you to be a loner and who wants to be a loner when being a loner means this really equally horrible kind of existence where you're even not allowed to explore what a relationship is and so he goes out of his way to try to find somebody who is or isn't nearsighted or he's going to do harm to himself by fall- pretending to fall for this heartless woman when he's not himself heartless and how much that hurts him and you see his friend purposely giving himself nosebleeds in order to get with a woman so i think the second thing that this whole thing brings up is the kind of and i don't think a lot of movies bring this up but the kind of like self infliction that men will put on themselves just to try to find a woman that they can relate to and i don't i think a lot of movies want to bring up i can say this because i'm the one woman on this podcast so no other (laughs) woman can disagree with me right now but (laughs) a lot of movies like kind of want to give us the woman's perspective of this whole dating scene but not a lot want to give us maybe the men's perspective and as clinical and cold as this movie might be in dialect i think that it does kind of raise some interest and like awareness to like what do men put themselves through to find a woman because who does want to be single in their older age and if you do what does that world kind of look like Ugh, it's i don't want to spin too much but we talked about the idea of uh representing yourself a little bit differently in order to have a good relationship and i think it's very very obvious in this movie that you have to represent yourself a certain way to survive uh this they've put it in like 45 days if you don't find your partner you're essentially well, we'll call it death for me. That's the way I look at it this way. So even right to the first question where he's asked if he's, you know, heterosexual or homosexual, you can see that the effort that he puts into thinking about the answer so that he can survive. What's going to survive or get him in a relationship better, a man or a woman in that circumstance? And that's kind of a clinical look at a relationship, too. Like, what do you need personally to, to advance yourself in that but that's also looking at it from a selfish aspect. and But there are some relationships that are like that, too. So we have to explore them all. And I think this movie does a really good job of, of allowing us to think about that, especially after you finish it. Yeah, I was going to also add on to that scene. You know, we go back to the very start, the straight or gay option, no bisexual options available due to operational problems. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you can imagine there's also what those no half size. Yeah, no half-size shoes. Uh, so the, yeah. I think it's already right away, it's like uh, we're establishing a society that's very binary. It's either this or that. I think that was definitely a comment on how people don't think that sexuality is a spectrum when it is because everything in the middle is too confusing for people. Uh, I, I think of almost uh, the boys um, when Queen Maeve, uh, she is bisexual, uh, but they say like, uh, hey, you know, Queen Maeve, we're going to say you're a lesbian because it's too confusing to say you're bisexual. We can't market you that way. <laughs> and that is kind of like the same thing. It, it Well, in this film, it's kind of saying we have people have the tendency, society does, to think in a binary way when uh, there could be a whole spectrum of options. 
Oh, absolutely. I think uh, the binary aspect of the film probably has to do a lot more with self-preservation. But yeah, I completely agree with everything you said. That's, that's really cool. For uh, I think the big uh, takeaway from this movie is that it leaves a lot of interpretation. Threads aren't closed in this movie. So the movie has, for every character that we don't see die or turn into an animal, their stories are left open-ended. So I'm going to ask uh, as many as I can, what do you think happens to this person? Patrick, I'm going to start with you. What happens to Limp Man? The guy whose uh, uh, mom was the guy a wolf. With the limp. Yeah, on the, on the I, boat. It seems like he he let them live, and he let him live in his own hell instead of killing him. Kind of deal. So you think he went through with it and just, like, tried to live a well, fake, also, perfect life? Well, also, like, they don't really tell you what happens to the whole the hotel situation after, right? They don't. They never really go back to that after the whole them, the manager's husband going to kill her and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I guess the hotel could have, like, folded, but in maybe a authoritarian government, it probably didn't. They probably just got new people. Well, but, they, do, do they ever get hunted uh, again after that part? It doesn't seem like it. No, but, but they're still not, like, allowed to go to the city without, a you know, another person. Unfortunately, we still see one of the charter buses headed towards oh, the hotel. Right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I guess it carried on. That is society's um, way. <laughs> Kelly, what do you think happened to the cold-hearted woman? They said that she was turned into an animal. Do you have a specific Ooh. animal that you would have? Good question. Yeah, so she's the best, most ruthless hunter every single time that our narrator at the time is talking, which we later find out is the love interest's diary. And then we lose it after the, the diary's found, and I like that. What's told to us is that every time she had asked David what animal did he turn her into, that he said it's none of her concern. I think that he turns her, and I saw that this was online as well, so I have strengthened my opinion. Multiple people, including myself, think that she gets turned <laughs> into a rabbit and because that means that you're just prey, you can't hunt, and then he probably offers that rabbit to the girl later. So it's just like a whole thing. But I also kind of think that people don't get turned into animals. I think that they just get killed. Oh, you think it's like a giver situation? <laughs> uh, not super familiar with giver, but I think like... We all read The Givers. <laughs> yeah, but ask me to tell you the plot right no, now. I never read it. <laughs> uh, they euthanize old people. They say they go to like a better color oh, yeah, place. I, I remember that now. Yeah. Thanks. Other than the <laughs> girl with the really nice blonde hair, and then we see the blonde pony later and in the woods later, that makes it kind of more convincing that there are the animals out there. But there's obviously no love for the animals that live in the world, knowing that a lot of them were humans in a past life, which... Here's my little vegan soapbox. What do you think about that? Anyways, I think either people just die or she got turned into a rabbit. All right, Eric, what do you think happened to Lisping Man, our good friend John C. Riley? He totally turned into an animal. Like, he was doomed. He, he got left in the woods uh, with, you know, just in his boxers yep. after he couldn't kill Colin Farrell, Dave. And, okay, that scene, we uh, Kelly and I both looked at each other and we were just talking about Colin Farrell's kind of, like, acting job in this film. He's very much like Napoleon Dynamite in this film. And that whole scene reminded me of a Napoleon Dynamite and Kip altercation. It, it's just, like, they, they like, kind of have a, a conflict, but then they get kind of uh, <laughs> off on the side tangent. And then Napoleon Dynamite just slaps him in the face, or in this sense, Dave... Or, wait, doesn't... 
um, Rachel Weiss, she uh, stabs him, and then stabs him. Yeah, yeah, and then Dave comes up and you know hits him uh, with the drink. And yeah, either way, I, I think he's screwed. He he definitely uh, you know he became single, and then I think Limping Man th- those two broke up. I, oh, the yeah. way that um, easily the nosebleed girl was like looking at him. I, I think she was like, "You're lying to me," and that was it. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think we have the best outcomes for people See, in this film. I, I actually agree with Patrick. I think they continue to go down the, the lie rabbit hole because when her daughter gave her the knife to like kill him, mommy, she like had the knife out like this, you know, ready to yeah. stab him because that was her way out. If because if she breaks up with him now, then they're both back at square one. So I think she uh, was she too was far to kill Dave. Though she gave the wife the knife to kill Dave. Right, to, to preserve their yeah. relationship. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, yeah, the kid was... Yeah, and probably the kids are these, but... the kids from foster care, in theory, yeah. if we look at it from this circumstance. Like, they have a, a bevy of kids that they're ready just to hand out to problem couples. That's probably a societal way of dealing with kids that don't have parents. I mean, yep. that's... Yeah, if you don't have a, a partner, what do you think parenting is looked at in this society? Like, <laughs> crazy pants, I'm sure. I love Absolutely. the certain, like, comments that are made... Like the, we, if there's trouble in the relationship, we assign them a child that always helps. Like that yep. delivery or a lot of people pick dogs. That's why there's so many dogs in the world. <laughs> like there's many times that like this is just given to us very matter of fact. And I'm like, oh yeah, that that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you, know, you believe it as, that... as Bible and that's it. Yeah. Is that why no one <laughs> picked dog when we asked uh, what animal you would become? Right. Yeah, I, I don't want to be kicked to yeah. death by a French lady. <laughs> I was not prepared. I actually, when he gets caught masturbating, yeah, dude, yeah, that's yeah, that was interesting. That was brutal. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, putting the hand in the toaster, yeah. and then Olivia Coleman comes up to him and just says, "You know, I'd be ogling the horse because he was a weak and cowardly man like you." <laughs> yeah. And you know, just the shame around masturbation. Dude, uh, that is so funny. Yeah. And then the other thing um, that also made me laugh very hard was that the men need like a daily lap dance just because it helps yeah. them find their partner. Right. And it's like but this it was... just like very matter of fact kind of thing. And Colin no, Farrell's just like, because it was intentional awful. blue balling. That's just awful. <laughs> Yeah, right. Oh, it's horseshit. Like intentional blue balling or something. So you have to think about having an orgasm, and the only way to do that is to get a partner. Like what's funny too? Not to be like too vulgar, but I thought that it meant like every day that the men get like, (laughs) sorry guys, but like released so that they could find a partner with a clear head. No, because the second one, he's like, can't you go a little bit longer? And she's like, no, and just walks out of the room. And he's like, this is horrible. (laughs) So yeah, no, that's blue balls for Uh. sure. If you guys didn't laugh out loud for... at that scene, that's like one of the funniest. And she was ones. a spy, man. Yeah. That's right? like yeah. that's a lot of commitment yeah. to being a spy. I, I that's, would that's say why she in this this movie, like it when it goes dark, it fucking goes dark, and it, I was not like prepared. You know, I'm watching this film, and you know the scene where she first like starts beating this, the uh, short haired lady just starts beating the shit out of a loner, and then. Uh, the dog scene or the hand mm. in the toaster, uh, but the dog scene, I was just like, like what the fuck is going on? I thought it was a joke, yeah. and then you look down and you see your bloody leg, and I'm like, oh, well, they just went hard, and then they go even harder, and they're like, we're gonna, we're gonna show you a dead dog now. That was hard. That scene, like you said, that was hard to watch, that, man. That dog gore. Yeah. Scene, I was like, why, why would you? It worked, but yeah. oh, that was so hard to watch. So. 
Blaze, not to spin you too far away, but I hope you're going to ask someone also what happens to the Butter Biscuits lady, because she clearly survived her attempt. Oh, yeah. Oh, I yes. yeah. Well, well, I Butter Biscuits everywhere. Blake that out of my mind, because that was terrible. Kevin. Yes. <laughs> what do you think happened to the, uh, the surviving loner leader guy? The, I guess the rest of the loners, to be honest, but like oh. the guy who uh, David accused of being short-sighted. Nothing. He became the next leader of the Outsiders once uh, Redhead Lady got her face beaten, eaten off by dogs. So he just became you know, the next I think leader. She was that like was the, the natural progression. The... Did you not think she was the cruel hand of the loners, though? Uh, I think she was the societal's representation of a leader kind of establishing themselves regardless of the situation. So they talked, they, there's going to be a hierarchy no matter what. So they kind of showed that even loners single people in this circumstance have some sort of leadership and hierarchy so I think there was always going to be someone there was always going to be that leader who was enforcing the rules regardless she was Joe Rogan and, <laughs> and then and then Cole <laughs> Kelly thanks for burying the lead what do you think happened to Biscuit Lady uh, Biscuit Lady again that was another hard scene to watch because it was just way too long and just hearing her like scream out in pain as uh as you know blood starts to pool up uh not i i mean i think she survived and given the fact that they can medically turn people into animals they probably have a pretty good shot at just keeping people alive that probably shouldn't be still alive she definitely got turned into an animal. I think she was the peacock that we later see in the film. So she wanted to be beautiful Ooh. and people to adore her and talk to her and look at her. So she probably turned herself into the peacock. That's my guess. That's cool. That's I like that. I like that a lot. Can I give my quick uh, interpretation of Biscuit Lady on the bus? Yes. Her? Yes. Oh, the bus scene? Absolutely, yes. Bus scene is phenomenal. It has the narration that Eric talked about that mocks the dialogue that we just heard, like, one for one. But the way that she just offers up this information about herself pretty explicitly, I saw that this movie came out not long after Tinder came out. And I think that that might be part of what the thing that is trying to be said is. It's like... On Tinder, is that not how maybe you introduce yourself pretty early on or out of desperation if you only have a few days left to be single? That was a whole kind of thing that I just found it fascinating. And the way that he he still has 45 Kevin days. Kevin met his wife on Tinder. Damn straight I did. <laughs> okay, not everybody, did, but did certain she, people. Say, Hold your horses here, Imagine Kelly. if you can only be on Tinder for 45 days and then snap, you're an animal. And then, like, yeah. so well, I talked about how, like, men men hurt people, themselves, yeah. right? So I talked about that kind of perspective of it. And then she and also our beautiful, like, blonde-haired woman are kind of the women's perspective of blonde-haired lady is, like, literally, I can't, I'm not even, like, up for this. She's just out of it. She doesn't even try, as far as we ever see. She has a best friend who she clearly does not have respect for in the end. And then we have Butter Biscuit Lady who's like, I am desperate beyond desperate. I will just say what I think needs to be said in order to find a partner. So I think that that's more of our women's perspective of living in this kind of world. Yeah. And I mean, oh, so absolutely. the moral of the story yeah. is even if you're willing to do anal, it doesn't mean true love. 
That's what biscuit. I mean, that's what we learned for biscuit. Unless Those two girls. Unless that's your shared characteristic. <laughs> yeah. Those two girls were absolutely in love all the way their entire life and never admitted it to each other. And then thought... they both turned into animals because they just weren't admitted. Like, they're why we write a story about not having prom dates and then being there for each other. Like, that was clearly set up to be like. Yeah, I thought the bond. You need to admit that you're interested in the other sex, otherwise you're going to end up turning into a pony. Mm-hmm. So go with your instincts. I think is what mm-hmm. that was trying to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, spicy conversation. So. A lot of this shit we've already touched base on, so we're going to kind of run through the last of my questions. What do you think the way certain punishments, i.e. the red kiss and digging your own grave, symbolize you in the real world? What does that mean as part of the loners, their punishments? Uh, Patrick? Those people just kind of reminded me of people who uh, hate Valentine's Day on Facebook. (laughs) That's what I thought of those people. All right. People who celebrate, like, Palentine's Day and... We all know the type. (laughs) Does anyone agree with Patrick? No, I do agree. And I think it's also just like when there's a resistance movement to any kind of oppressive system, it becomes just as violent, if not more. I think that that might be part of the thing that they're trying to say. Yeah, like maybe like the incel community or something like that a little bit. You get to masturbate whenever you want, which is pretty cool, I guess. And uh, it's a very strange society, and that's when, like, I don't know, the movie, like, gets really long in certain places, so I wonder if that was, like, intentional. 90 minutes. minutes. Um, But what do you guys think of uh, the digging your own grave thing? Is that, like, uh, I'm I'm independent, I don't need no man sort of thing, or? Uh, For me, I think that was the reality that they know that your decisions matter. So if you have digging your own grave, you you know that, the next decision that you make, regardless, is it's you have already planned out. So if you make the decision to have uh, sexual relations or to flirt or to do anything that since you've already established yourself as single, you know that these are likely the repercussions or the same ideas. If you get caught during the hunt, this is likely the same thing. So establishing that this is going to be your permanent choice. If you decide to be a single person or a loner, this is it until death. And in order to do that, you dig your grave in order to symbolize that this is the decision that you have made for life, similar to what you would do if you were in a partnership, make the decision for life. So they're just kind of making that, that make, again, the allegory on these are the, the decisions and the permanency of, of what you decide in a, in a societal place with relationships. Yeah, no, it's insane that, um, Patrick, go ahead. I was going to say, I think going back to what I said about, uh, how these people are kind of like these, like, I hate Valentine's people, you know, those people are always saying, like, I was born alone and I will die alone. <laughs> like, like, people like that are just like, very militant about being unlovable, you know? Yeah, well, absolutely, and I think it's, like, it's kind of funny how it's the reverse of, well, not the reverse, but it's the same side of a different coin, mm-hmm. and the fact that, you know, Eric, Eric alluded to that how binary the hotel was, you yeah. know? You can only be gay or straight. You can only do this or that. In this um, loner society, it's kind of the same way. You you know, you hunt by yourself. You dance by yourself. You can talk to people. You can't flirt. Like it's very rigid binary rules. So I think that's a very interesting contrast, Cole. Yeah, and and you know these the two kind of sides of the coin for for this situation reminds me a lot of the people that base their whole persona or personality around either being in a relationship or like anti-relationship right like you have a lot of people who their personality is is their partner 
and that's like they are just that's their whole thing is being in a relationship and then you got the other people who are just like I'll never be in a relationship I don't ever want to be a part of it people who are in relationships are fucking morons uh, and there there wasn't any, you know in this world or this society there isn't that that middle ground that I believe our, our poor little lobster man was trying to find I wonder if it also has anything to do with the religion and all like you know uh, I'm sure. brothers and sisters I'm sure there's a lot well yeah. you know based off of the Amazon one star reviews they a lot of people believe that it was uh, some uh, felony religious reality is what uh, someone described this as. So I was going to say that it, it almost gave me like Handmaid's Tale uh, dystopian society yeah, feature, yeah, you yeah. know, because you're forced to you know be go into a relationship or marry somebody. It's it's different because it's not as extreme as Handmaid's Tale. I still see the very strict dystopian society right. that Handmaid's Tale has. And, yeah, I, I definitely think the part of society that's more Christian would be the one that's forcing you into a relationship. And the loners are kind of the atheists, uh, the Friedrich Nietzsche's of the world, you know. Mm-hmm. And people being very extreme in one way or the other and not giving any headway to the other is kind of like how our society is right now, too. So Right. I was going to say, how yes. dystopian is this really at this point? I feel like we really do make a big focus Whoa, on... on <laughs> wait, no, we make a major focus on the idea that couples in general or that love or that heterosexual even, you know, relationships are the norm or it's okay. Things are changing. We're moving in progressiveness, obviously, but I think the commentary here truly is that what happens if that's all that's valued, right? If that's the, the decision that is being made that, you know, being a couple is the viable way and anybody else is the dregs of society. I think it's, we see it in commercials. We see it in movies. We see it in just the general aspect of our daily lives. It's still your intended quote unquote to be in a relationship and that's society's expectations. And I think that's very clear that this is what they wanted us to see. Well, this movie was filmed in Ireland and you know, you do have the, the troubles in Northern Ireland about the Catholic and the Protestants. So maybe this is just what it's like over there. They're just <laughs> right. We're just yeah. hitting all the bases. <laughs> I think there's a different Colin Farrell movie that touches on that even deeper. Might be recent. Phone. Yeah, I think of the it's name. Phone yeah, well, I wonder what that is. <laughs> oh, I don't want to be your friend anymore. <laughs> all right, I don't watch enough movies. Now we we kind of we did a really good job on this, so I'm gonna breeze past this question. Uh, this movie could be and flows between a, a black comedy a love story, and a postmodern horror, more specifically, a synthetic horror. Do the tones that constantly shift help or hurt the movie? Now, we've already talked about all the really black, dark comedy. You guys cringe during the uh, Biscuit Ladies bit, uh, attempted suicide. I was kind of laughing just because of his, uh, his act he was putting on. But everything else, Cole said it, I think, directly. He said the parts that were actually dark were really, really dark. I think it really worked. For me, it's it's extremely dark and we've talked about all the dark parts. But for me, I laughed out loud probably like every 20 minutes or more. I found this movie to be like hilarious. But also, Eric's kind of brought up our director always asks us in his movies. I haven't seen uh, Dogtooth, but he asks like the big, big philosophical questions, which I think you can tell just based on us discussing it and not even getting through the whole entire movie and what the ending could mean and i'm sure we're going to get there as well but with all of this incorporated into it without ever 
being told by the actors it's time to laugh, I laugh at it. It's just the commentary on it and the delivery choice of it, it hits me right in the funny bone. Like this is the kind of stuff that I think is really funny. Totally agree. I was I was laughing so much in this movie more than, you know, certain straight comedies, you know, like mm-hmm. I like when they're just making out on uh, the leader's couch yes. while their parents are playing music. I was on the floor laughing. I thought that was one of the funniest things. And then I don't think I've laughed so hard this year. We've already talked about it. But when Colin Farrell kicks the girl and says, now you'll be more like your dad. <laughs> I thought that was the funniest shit on the planet. Like it was, was hilarious. hilarious. Now, does that anyone... was just like classic slapstick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Does, does anyone it's feel the complete opposite? Slapstick. Like Kevin already said that it was a kind of hard to uh, track, I guess, which is very true. But did anyone feel like it totally ruined the movie for them? I feel like all the shifts made it feel like it was that long of a movie. <laughs> okay, Kevin, it's time for the obligatory music question. The music soundtrack of this movie was very piano and string heavy with Apo Mesa... Prometheus, which is a Greek composer, Danae, and to our old friend Strauss, and even they threw in some Nick in the Bad Seeds featuring uh, Kylie Minogue. What do you think the music did for this movie, Kevin? Were you a fan? Yes. Long story short, I think they did a very, very good job of using what we talk about as those anxious level strings. So when we get a lot of the violin work, a lot of the classical music, it definitely poses a certain emotional element to it. I love that they use the big hitters in this one, like you already alluded to. We talked about, you know, Beethoven and Stravinsky and Strauss and Stostakovich and a lot of these big, huge names. So they're taking pretty well-recognized pieces and working them into it. I did enjoy Where the Wild Roses Grow as far as, as a kind of a lyric piece. I had no idea what that song was until I kind of looked at it after the fact. And uh, I thought that was really unique there. They did a really good job of blending the music together um, and then even using that absurdity of the electronic dance music as being the only form uh, of genre music that the outsiders can use. It's almost like making commentary that, that EDM apparently is not music or is the is the single version of, of music. So we've got classical music as what the couples use or what the people may use if you're normal society but those on the outskirts of society are listening to edm and and jamming uh in that circumstance i kind of wish we would have gotten a little bit of edm in there as kind of a uh, a side piece but i do understand that it was we're not going to let you hear it because it's it's not meant for you it's not meant for the viewer because this is the off side of things so music was great did a great job of putting the emotion on side of things they they used some pretty famous pieces and i just enjoyed kind of the the emotion driving that they used in that. Patrick is the other uh, music guy. I mean, Patrick was in a punk band and hardcore band, but I think that's very valid. Um, what did you think of the soundtrack? Did it help with the uh, ambiance of the movie? Yeah, I think in some places it did. Like to go back to the uh, the first hunting scene, I think the music kind of like how I said it was kind of like this like epic hunting painting. It kind of yeah really fed back into that. Agreed. It's this suspenseful classical. And there's something that we'll say in design, which is like really good, especially like user interface design, is things that you don't notice. And you only notice it when it's bad or it kind of like stands out as like something wrong. It gave the tone. It fit the scene. 
it worked with it. And I don't mean to put words in your mouth, Patrick, but that's kind of what I hear from it. And that's the feeling that I got from the movie as well. And it's just that like suspenseful strings. Eric and I brought up HBO's like show Succession kind of features the same kind of like music and it's a similar kind of tone. So I thought that it was a good match. Oh, absolutely. I do want to say, though, I think I, I agree with all of you, but the uh, when they were string heavy, um, like that Apo Mesa Pathophius, I'm sorry, I'm totally butchering that. I thought that <laughs> was like the perfect. Uh, I think that was the hunt scene, actually, because it was very, very like loud, high strings. And it really made you like perk up. It was like uh, when we had talked about the witch a couple of weeks ago, um, those very high notes they hit when they really needed to. And everything else was very wonderful uh, mood-setting background centers. Anyways, uh, let's get to the ending of this movie. I think this is um, one of the hottest points of contention, probably with every moviegoer. So the ending scene, even as stated by the director, was meant to be left up to the audience's interpretation. He did not want to give away the ending. He will not give away the ending because he says there is no ending. But considering how the movie ends with... The uh, nearsighted lady, or now I guess blind lady, waiting for uh, David to gouge out his eyes so they could have something in common. They hold still for two minutes, and then it goes to black. What do you guys think of this ending? What happens between blind lady and potentially blind man? Cole, it's been a second. Let's hear you. I think, given uh, David or Colin Farrell's character throughout this film, I think he probably does it. Um, I think he probably just goes ahead and fucking stabs himself. He wants love. He wants to love this person. And I think he does truly love this person. But the only way he knows how to express it is, you know, with his stupid eyes. So I I think he goes ahead and does it. You know, usually I kind of like those kind of endings where it's up to interpretation and stuff. But I don't know. I felt like I would have liked, you know, maybe a scream or two thrown in the mix. Um, it was just, again, <laughs> two minutes of just real long, drawn-out shots that I had seen a lot of. And uh, I'm not going to lie, sort of just kind of like did like the 15 seconds, 15 seconds. Okay, still still nothing. Still nothing. Oh, okay, cool, 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 cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, this movie's done. So Ending. No. So, so that's one vote for blind. Eric? Yeah. No. So, I mean, I, I think Yorgos Lanthimos doesn't want us to have an answer. Um, well, and yeah, no shit. It, he didn't you know, do anything. Said, he just shot up. He just filled the person <laughs> sitting there. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> this goes back to the whole question that I think is posed is uh, the ending is asking is, is this love or infatuation? This uh, relationship between these two people. We can ask that about all, you know, like physical relationships. Is it love or just infatuation that could eventually run its course? Which I believe in love. Uh, that's why I married uh, Kelly over here. But either way, um, oh. it's asking, <laughs> can he make a sacrifice that he would live with for the rest of his life to be with this person? Uh, like that, that is something that love would do. You would make a sacrifice uh, to be with somebody. Um, but if he was only physically infatuated with her then he would choose to not blind himself as he wouldn't choose to make a sacrifice to be with her. You know, that's, if you're just physically infatuated with somebody, you probably wouldn't, well, actually, no, there's been a lot of people that have done much worse things for sex. But anyway, um, I think when his significant other, you know, isn't the same physically anymore, 
that's when he probably asks himself, like, do I still want to be with this person? When this person is physically changing, am I still going to love them? That is when you commit to a lifetime partnership, you are going to think, you know, when we're in our old age, am I still going to be, uh, love this person for who they are and everything? And that is what that last scene, I think, is a little microcosm of is he's, do I love her to, to the point where, you know, she's blind and different from me, but I'm going to make the choice to continue to be with her. And so we, we don't know. I think that's what the director is asking. Is this uh, just love or infatuation? Can this person make a sacrifice or are they just uh, in it for the physical infatuation? And now that she's blind, his feelings have changed. I'm going to believe that he does love her. I'm going to go with the happy ending because I, I am a little bit of an optimist uh, in the end when it comes to these matters. And so I'm going to believe that he did blind himself. And it probably took a little bit to do it because we were sitting with Rachel Weiss there for a good <laughs> minute or so. But I think he did. Kevin? I am also going to jump on the happy ending train on this one uh, for a couple different reasons. Um I think your eyes out is the happy ending. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, honestly. Oedipus Rex, baby. So David, throughout the film, David, throughout the film, kind of shows that he doesn't have a lot of time for people who are lying or faking their emotions in general, right? He goes out of his way to make Mm -hmm. sure that he's assigned to that yacht to go make sure that Limp Man doesn't get to get away with lying um, to his future prospective person. Uh, I think that he takes some time to really think about what he's going to do after that last round of what was the game called touch guess think win so after that last round where he had to kind of think after the tennis ball was correctly identified as a kiwi (laughs) whether or not he was going to (laughs) be um the seeing eye dog will will say it for for his partner in that circumstance and he made the decision to do it he made the decision to take out the leader of of the resistance to to go and run and to put her there to take the stake. Yeah, he just did all of the things that he went through to, to ensure that that relationship was important to him. And it could have been self-preservation, but I honestly truly want to think that that was how he found that love and that acceptance and that he was going to do whatever it was. Because at the end of the day, if he didn't, he could have walked out there and lied and said, yes, honey, I murdered, I, I blinded myself. Let's let's go. And that could have been a viable option because she never would have known the difference otherwise. But then he would have been just like everybody else. And that's not the option. So I do think that uh, he blinded himself in the end and was with his love. All right, Patrick, are you going to tip the boat to the blind side? I think he didn't because I feel like that director definitely would have showed us him doing it if he did it. Considering all the other stuff they did yeah, I show mean, he in that movie. That doll. Yeah. yeah. So you think he copped out? I don't know. If he's not going to tell me, I'm not going to waste my time trying to figure it out. <laughs> Hell yeah. That's fair. Fuck that guy. <laughs> Stupid director wants Golly. me to think. I already been there with agree. the Sopranos. <laughs> yes, Sopranos. <laughs> I am both. Uh, I'm a blend of both Kevin and Patrick um, where, okay. So I think that one, one interpretation is that you kind of hear water sounds at the end of these like two minutes that you're sitting with our love interest, which kind of ascribes to he went back and became a lobster or something, but I don't believe that. I also don't think that he blinded himself because I agree that our director would show it because there's been no shyness to show these kind of things. And I, when watching this, was kind of confused because after she goes blind, it seems like he cares about her less. 
it seems like his interest is a lot less. But I think while I'm reflecting on it, that it's just his like dis disassociation, like disinterest in this like world that he lives in. And I think that he did tr- find finally some very like variation of actual true love for him, where he's like, even though we don't have this one characteristic in common anymore i still very deeply care for this woman and i'm gonna risk it all to get us out of here together and i think that he doesn't blind himself but probably just pretends that he did and comes back because he can protect the two of them with his eyesight and maybe he can pretend to the world that he's blind and he probably tells her the truth about it because she isn't afraid of telling him the truth about it though she tries to lie first So I choose to believe that he didn't blind himself, but he will pretend he did for the world and that they found true love together. We got that crazy scene where he tried to prove that one guy was not nearsighted or was nearsighted with the contacts. And that that scene was like he truly was jealous that there was somebody else giving her rabbits. Yeah, that was true emotion. That was actually how he felt like that wasn't I'm going to do this because I want to better myself is like i am angry as hell that the person that i'm falling for is now apparently with somebody else so there i agree with kelly in that sense yeah and that's finally something where i think that when you do love somebody like you love like the difference between you and them so the fact that she loves rabbits and we never have any indication on how david feels about eating rabbits but we hear in detail how much she does and then his jealousy shows for that and he knows that is a characteristic of her and like wants to be the one that gives her rabbits and doesn't want anyone else to do it for her because love is also like a form of just like possessiveness in like a good way though i think that that kind of ascribes to the fact that there is something actually true behind there that's different from every other relationship that the hotel tries to put together i almost think that those two days he wasn't um I, disinterested. I think he was pondering, like, what can I do now? Like, I, I think he was angry that she was blind, and he was pondering, what, how can we live together forever? And he was alone. Before this is what we were planning on. He yeah. was probably alone, right? So he was yeah. weighing being with this person, regardless if she's blind, or being alone yeah. again in the woods. And he clearly mm-hmm. decided that that was more important. And yeah. he tries to ask her other things that, like, might be his characteristic. Do you speak German? Do you play piano? No. Right, yeah. yeah. No. Yes, I forgot about that scene. He goes through all of those things. Like, I'm listing and, like, holding on to something, whether this is right or not for me to do. Oh, yeah. good call. <laughs> yes, but he's also been known to be a proven liar. Relatively, she's not that into him. When she finds out that she's blind, she says, why didn't you blind him? And she was for self-preservation. And... I really want to bring this home because this is something that I didn't realize because the first time I saw the movie, I didn't see it all the way through. But when the final credits end, you hear Black Ocean as if maybe he decided to stay single and turn into a lobster because he did not want to handle the uh, responsibilities of what it takes to be with a blind person, especially given his uh, predicament. But like I said... It's all uh, up for interpretation. I think it's awesome. I think we all have valid ideas. And whatever we want to say is the end of the movie can be the end of the movie because the director didn't tell us what it was. So, is being we're... blind a black ocean? It could be, but I think the lobster is a big like <laughs> part of it. Like, lobsters live yeah. in the ocean. Well, and I think that sound think, was there. I think he goes blind because he also the end of the, the movie is black. 
<laughs> oh yeah, that must be it. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Holy shit. <laughs> All right, guys. Any final thoughts? Any final sentiments? I loved that the hotel propaganda shows that were put on the stage gave cliche, cringy prom aesthetic. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to touch mm-hmm. on that. Uh, I did love that. What, what is I really like that song. What is everyone's definable feature? Ooh, yeah. What is everybody's definable feature? That's a great question. Not prepared to answer. Uh, Cole, you go first. Yeah, yeah. I was to say, I'm Cole, a great you... audio editor. All right, go <laughs> ahead, please. You better be after tonight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I know mine. What's yours, I, please? Although, I have defining, a... Uh, defining? Brown, that's... No, I can't do I that. I have a brown streak in my eye. Um, that's kind of like a birthmark, I guess. Yeah, yeah, we have to pick it like based on movie terms too. Like, don't try to think about it or go too deep. Be really shallow. Blaze, I was actually no, I'm being a show lobster shallow. Blaze, I was gonna say my Uh, eyes because everyone always says my eyes match my hair. Oh my god, are we perfect for each other? I can't answer this question. I'm not. I guess we're getting out of the hotel, guys. Yeah, (laughs) see you, fucking losers. The eye boys are going on a yacht. Yeah, like, I like right. music. There you go. Hey, Eric, there we go. I, I don't know. Eric, Eric yeah, can't Eric. answer. What's what? your definable feature? I, I said I'm a great audio editor. Oh, that's stupid. Kelly, what's yours? I mean, yeah. what, a physical so one? So that's the thing then. In, in this world, Eric and I never find each other because yeah. that's not me. I'm an animal lover. I love animals. There we go, Kevin. There you go. You find each other now. I've got, <sighs> I've got like a little freckle on the very on my solar plexus, like right in the middle, right here. Okay, so we got freckle guy. Uh, That's highly specific. I've, <laughs> I've got a Tanakh tattoo on my butt cheek. <laughs> I don't know. My definable do characteristic is also, Kevin's, Kevin's got a bad back, so. Yeah, I've got a bad back. There you go. Got back before 40. He got an alien pulled out yeah, of the Yeah, what about you, Patrick? That thing was fucking crazy looking. Uh, I'm 30 feet tall. This, this is a podcast. You know, it's it's, it's an audio Patrick's, medium. Patrick's not a, a pathological one. liar. All right, we figured out his, his <laughs> definable feature. <laughs> yeah. Are you the trolls that Norwegians talked about in their folklore tales? No, that's great. Yeah, actually, yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's the animal he'd be turned into. He already said Blaze. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So let's go with uh, ladies first. Let's go with Kelly, and uh, I'll go around the table, I guess. Okay. We've talked a lot, and it's been a long episode, and I feel like I have myself talked a lot on this episode, so I will keep it short. I think that it's pretty apparent that I very much like this movie, and I really love our director's choices and i know that the most obvious one is the dialect and the delivery and it's so different from any other movie i've ever seen and it's so good to me i love it so much and i want all movies to be like this but then it wouldn't be special but i love that i love the commentary and the way that it makes you kind of just think about labels i think that if you are watching this both times for me watching it i was married to eric so i always watched it as someone who was coupled up But if I watched it while I was single, I would probably have a different perspective watching it. And I think that that might be who this movie's made for even more. So lots lots of good things. I talked on a lot of other good things. But the only thing for me is I will agree that I think it's a bit too long. It drags in the second half, especially. And 
as enthralled as I was for the whole movie, there were parts where I was just like, I get it. We can move on just a little bit quicker with the pacing. So for that, it doesn't reach like the perfect um, realm for me, but it is really good and something that I would recommend only to specific people. And I'm sure you all know, like, you can't recommend this to everybody, but just some. Anyways, all this said, it's a solid B24 from me. B24 from Kel. All right. Patrick, our esteemed guest of honor, who we're going to roast after this. I thought it was fine. It was it was really long. Not really long. No, that's <laughs> that's not fair. It was it was just too long. I don't know. I've seen Dog Tooth and I think I liked that movie better. Yeah. I'll give it a C twenty four. C twenty four. Very good. Kevin, can you split the difference? I always love it when someone goes first before me and puts the letter grade that I had in my head down because that validates my viewership a little bit more. So this movie in general, I have never watched a movie where I said, what the fuck is going on more than while I was watching this movie. And I mean that with a lot of good things, but there was so many times on my notes where I was just like, WTF, what am I seeing? What am I watching? And when it wrapped it up with a nice little bow at the end, you kind of get a really good perspective of what you're viewing and what you're seeing. This very much falls into line with what A24 has, was given me in general. Um, for our for our listening audience, I was the non-A24 person coming into this podcast. I had never really seen any of them and had no idea what the vibe was like. I've gotten a pretty good idea over these last 30-some movies of what I'm kind of getting myself into, and this movie very much fits that vibe in general from the opening credits to the very end or opening scene to the very end credits we kind of get that same vibe across we've touched on a lot of different things from the way we think that this movie had a lot of themes to made us feel certain ways um, that's always important we talk about that all the time with our movie reviews if the movie makes you feel that means it was a pretty decent movie and in this circumstance i think it did a good job i won't harp on our criticisms too much i agree with you guys that it was a little bit lengthy and some of the absurdest moments had me questioning kind of where this movie was going, but it, it did redeem itself in the end. Um, I like the acting choice, like the soundtrack choice. I do want to watch it again because I want to watch it already knowing the big reveals and the big secrets. I want to know kind of from the very beginning what that looks like. And then I can ask myself some of the same questions we asked ourselves in this podcast, which is pretty cool too. So I'm looking forward to listening to a back of our episode watching the movie again and kind of seeing how that whole thing flies. So I will recommend it to people. I do think it has rewatchability, and in general, I did enjoy it. So it does uh, get a B24 as well from me. All right, Mr. Eric Kiska, come on down. All right, so I definitely think your opinion of this movie probably comes down to your enjoyment of Yorgos Lanthimos' directorial style. And in this day and age, I always give points to directors that are auteurs that have their own style and I love movies that make you think and uh, give you questions to ponder. You know, that's what A24 is kind of known for. That's why I love A24. That's why we do this podcast is their movies give you questions to ponder. I, I really do actually enjoy uh, Yorgos Lanthimos' style and his style of film. But because I know this director's trademarks and what his potential is, I actually have something to judge this off of and kind of compare to and that's the killing of a sacred deer mm -hmm. and the killing mm -hmm. of a sacred deer is like one of my favorite a24 films and i know this director's potential and how good he can be and this movie didn't quite reach that potential for me i i don't 
think that, like, I'm gonna, you know, knock it that much because I, I feel like there was way more potential for this film. And I still, I like the theme of this film. I like the, it's unique dystopian world that is created. I like the, I like the acting and uh, the overly dramatic uh, classical music. I, I like all these things, but I just think that the potential uh, for more was there. And I know that this director has more potential. So I'm going to put this down to a B24, just like uh, Kevin and Kelly used a lot of words just to agree with them. But uh, yeah, that's, that's where uh, I'm going to land at. That's that's usually how we do this podcast. We say a lot of words to yeah. agree with each other. All right. <laughs> Mr. Canady, can you lift up this GPA? Um, no. I mean, I, I enjoyed this film, but uh, like I already alluded to and what we've already talked about, it was way too long. The um, the last the last act of this film when they got into the like the loners club and stuff, um, I felt like that should have been much more condensed, but it was drawn out much more. I preferred the first you know half where he was in the hotel and in that kind of interesting society. The loners just like after the first you know, 15 minutes of the loners club group, you know, I got it. I was like, okay, these guys are also crazy, but they're just the loners versions. And then it just kept going and then they went to the city and then they went to the city and then they went to the city. I was like, okay, (laughs) like let's, uh, let's move on. I enjoyed some of the comedy. I equally loved and hated how they did the dialogue and the, like how everything was presented. Like it goes back to that clinical, just, how everyone interacted and i i love the like the i guess the world building aspect but at the same token i hated it because i would have thought it could have been a f- more fun or, or better comedy movie if they were able to do some expressive expressive stuff or i don't know i just it just felt weird sometimes and then when you throw in some of the really dark stuff with the woman jumping off a building the dead dog and all this other stuff you know, kind of downplayed it. I also don't understand how this movie got made. Like, I've been trying to figure out how this maniac, and I'm glad it got made, but how this maniac <laughs> went and got funding for this insane concept of a movie by, like, just, it's just all around, just, I don't know how you would pitch this movie. It just doesn't make any sense. It's all wacky. We're going to do a dark comedy. There's going to be dead dogs. People are going to be turned into animals, and it's Irish. What, like, of course, yeah, sure. Here's four million dollars. Go make a fucking movie. <laughs> so, uh, that with all that said, I think it's uh, I gave it a C plus twenty four. It's good. It's not great. I'd recommend it to some. I definitely am glad I watched it. It's been on my list, but uh, it's not one that I'm gonna go back and you know want to rewatch a bunch of times. I am excited for Sacred Deer, Killing of the Sacred Deer, and I do like this director's style and i like some of the stuff he's done i would just hope you know maybe he can clean it up on the next go around with the sacred year wonderful my thoughts on this movie are very complicated much like all of yours i feel like everyone has very not different takes but also very different takes i really love dystopian movies like i said snowpiercer is one of my favorite movies soylent green robocop you know so But the cool thing about dystopian movies is, like, what do you like about them? So, one, Kelly said it earlier, it's very different from any other, like, premise for a dystopian future. 
Number two is that it was a coherent story in the first half, and then it kind of wasn't. But I think the messaging was there the entire the entire runtime. This movie made me laugh. It made me cry. It made me cringe. But, you know, I really like this movie. And my biggest hindrance for this movie is, like Eric said, I know what um, Killing of the Sacred Deer is and how wonderful that movie is. Very hard for me to grade against that movie when I know I'm going to grade that higher. This movie isn't for everyone. I do think anyone that likes absurdist takes on very broad philosophical views, I think it's the perfect movie for you. But at the same time, I'd be wary to like recommend it to my grandma because she'd probably turn it off in the first 20 minutes because she doesn't get it. So I'm going to give this a B minus 24, and it probably deserves a lot higher because of how hard I laughed and everything like that. But at the end of the day, it's, that's the best I can give it because there is a ceiling on this movie, but I loved every second of it, and I think I'm going to watch it again sometime in the future. So, that being said, thank you all for being here, Patrick. Thank you so much. Um, your 10K is in Venmo right now, so um, if you don't get it, it got declined. But please, if you liked it, rate, subscribe, five stars. Does anyone know what uh, the next episode is going to be? It is De Palma, where we will also have another guest, uh, my co-worker, Ray Neiman, who really enjoys Brian De Palma, who has directed Scarface, Carlito's Way, um, and a few other. He's a auteur director himself. Perfect. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing all you guys then. And until then, thank you so much. Okay, We're bye. Here, Jay. See you later, everybody. <laughs> have a Thanks, nice. Many hamburgers to you once Many again. Many hamburgers to you. <laughs> Holy shit.